One of the realities of the letter of Hebrews is it seems to be written by someone extremely familiar with that community to the point where many scholars of Hebrews actually call the writer of Hebrews the pastor because this person has very much a, a pastor's heart, which for me, I kind of like that. And the, the letter, therefore, as we pastors tend to do, can be seen as a sermon likely to be read out loud to the community that this person either was actively pastoring or had pastored. It seems like they've, they've been away from this community for some time. And in any good sermon or any good talk, any good TED talk, uh, uh, hashtag welcome to my TED talk, right? Um, at some point, it is wise, thank you. Uh, at some point, it is wise to pause and to say, this is what I'm saying. This is the whole point. If you, if you, uh, if you hear nothing else, make sure that you hear this. We have just arrived at that point in the letter of Hebrews, which feels wonderful given the kind of massive change that this is for our community to say, uh, let's catch up on where we've been to this point in this letter, because that's what the letter, the, the pastor seems to want us to do. Just listen to the language of verse one. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. And that seems to be summarizing quite literally everything that's gone before. What is the point? The point is we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's the point, that we have such a high priest who is now seated at the right hand of God, enthroned in a sense with God. Now, if you're someone unfamiliar with church, unfamiliar with the Bible, that might sound like the craziest mix of religious uh, jargon that you've ever heard. If you're familiar with the Bible and with the church, that might sound like a lot of theological jar jargon. And so let me, if you'll allow me, let me just walk us back through this letter up until this point to give you a sense why the pastor here would say, before I go any further, if you've missed this, you've missed everything that I'm trying to say. And so literally, if you have a physical Bible, I would love for you to flip back to the beginning, and I'm going to leave a whole bunch of stuff out. We preach, you know, 45 minutes a week on five verses, so you don't want to hear the full summary. But as best as I can to fly at a little bit of a, you know, 30,000-foot altitude to give you a sense of the argument that's been building to this point. Hebrews opens chapter 1 with this idea, as, as it well should, as we always should, it begins with Jesus. It says that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, the one through whom God created the universe. In other words, Jesus is the single most important figure in all of history, in cosmic history, in human history, and thereby he is the most important, whether you realize it or not, character in your own story. And this one, through whom God created the world, is now sustaining the world. This is the power and authority that has been handed to this one. And the comparison that the pastor makes here is to angels. He says, not even these spiritual beings that are ministers of God himself, of the creator of the universe, even, even remotely match the authority and supremacy of this Jesus. Chapter 2, he then says, the reason why Jesus has this authority is stunningly not merely because he is the second member of the Trinity. It is not merely a result of his divinity, but actually Jesus now shares that authority because he perfectly embodied what it means and embodies to this day what it means to be human. Jesus is all God, 
all human. And the way that this is articulated is to say that what you and I were meant to be and can never be, what every human being ever created fails to be, falls short of, Jesus willingly stepped into and perfectly embodied. He was perfectly obedient to God. He blessed the world at utter, complete expense to himself. You see, this is what we were created for. Again, whether you realize it or not, this is the huge question of life. Why am I here? What am I made for? And the scripture's beautifully compelling answer to that is you were made for a a specific relationship. That relationship is with your creator, with the God of the universe. And you were actually made to be someone who listens to his voice and obeys and lives in step with what he asks of you. And to the extent that you do that, that is the very definition of human flourishing. And yet all of us run after a thousand other definitions of what it means to be fully alive, what it means to find ourselves, what it means to have the good life, what it means to live the whatever dream it is, the American dream, the dream of, uh, that, that we create in our own heads. We chase after all of these other definitions of the good life when we are actually made for something that has been given to us, which is the life that God calls us to. And stunningly, even though the promise is so enormously great, all of us, in turn, walk away from that. We choose our own way. We say, that sounds great, but when I look at the way God asked me to live, it simply looks too costly. Therefore, I'm going to do my own thing, secure my own future, secure my own pleasure and happiness. And even though we find ourselves utterly destroyed by that pursuit, we continue to believe, no, this is better than the cost that it would be to live in the way that God has asked me to live. Jesus, you see, is not only the human being that we could not be. I love uh, an, an ancient theologian who says, it's probably better to say Jesus is the human we dare not be. That we don't, that we simply lack the courage to be because we know what it will cost us. And in case we, we doubt for a second that it is costly, We simply look at Jesus who lived that perfect life and say, what what was his ultimate reward for living that way? And so there is a, a thick, thick irony to this, which is in some ways our souls are correct in saying, if I lived that way, I might be destroyed. And yet what the gospel says is you may be destroyed, but it will be unto the life that you were actually made for. It would be unto your own cosmic and ultimate salvation. And yet what we so often choose is momentary pleasure, momentary joy for eternal destruction rather than what the Apostle Paul calls momentary and light affliction, suffering, cost, sacrifice for eternal reward, for eternal relationship and joy and contentment with God. You see, this is what Jesus did. This is why authority has been handed to him. Because a human being was always meant to have that authority. This is what our first parents, Adam and Eve, were made for and yet fell short of. But now there is one who embodies this. As we go on, chapters 3 and 4 defines for us what it will now cost us to follow Jesus in that path. And he uses all of this beautiful language from the Old Testament to say in so many words that the life of faith is really hard. That irreducibly to become a Christian is, as our very Lord said, to take up a cross, to sacrifice, to suffer, 
to say no to self. And so I love one of the things, one of the reasons why we're in this letter as a community now is I love its honesty to say that so often the journey of faith does not feel like a walk in a beautiful park. It feels like wilderness. We thirst and we hunger and we get discouraged and we wander. And the scriptures say, yeah, that sounds about right. Isn't that weirdly, paradoxically encouraging? <laughs> and yet it says, it defines for us not only what the journey is like, it defines for us the destination. And it says, but the destination, the other side of this, is what your soul most longs for, which it defines as this beautiful biblical concept of rest. It says there is rest at the end of the journey, and it will be worth it. And how do we know it's worth it? We know it's worth it by the same evidence that we know that following God is really hard. We look at Jesus because Jesus himself, though he paid an ultimate cost for his obedience, now reigns and rules and rests and sits in his finished work at the right hand of the Father. And it says this rest is something he will give us on that day. Now the question is, yeah, but what about now? Because life is really hard now, and COVID is really hard. Making all these decisions, again, is brutal, and loss is difficult, and life is full of disappointment. And I still wander, and I'm still tempted, and I still give in, and I still find myself full of the guilt and shame that I thought I would be done with five years ago, ten years ago. It says, well, what's so beautiful about this journey is we are not left alone. This is chapters 5 and 6 and 7 of Hebrews. We're catching up to ourselves here because it says that Jesus does not leave us alone on that journey. You see, he is our high priest. And this is language that doesn't jump off the page to most of us because many of us did not grow up in traditions with temples and priests. Now, some of you did. Some of you understand and resonate with this language. The image that's being gotten at here is, what every single, not just Christianity, but really what every world religion fundamentally says is that there is a reality beyond what is apparent to our sight and eyes. There is a reality that stands, there's some kind of ultimate reality behind what we see. And that part of maybe the, the fundamental way to define the human condition is to say, we are disconnected from that reality. And so something, what religion does, it says something needs to bridge that gap. Something needs to come between my disconnectedness, my current state of disconnectedness, and that ultimate reality. And what most religions say is, here's the way, here is what you need to do, here is the moral condition you need to be in, here, is, um, here are the steps that you need to take. And even non-religious worldviews, like the ones many of us are tempted to ascribe to, right? Religion, quote unquote, is going away. No, 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 religion isn't going anywhere because people are still trying to connect themselves to that which they feel disconnected to. Our souls are still crying out and thirsty for some kind of connectedness that would solve this ache at a soul level. And so whatever the definition is, uh, self-care and mindfulness and... Um, Self-discovery, these are all trying to save the same ache. These are all means of being reconnected, of having healed that soul's ache. 
what Christianity, and if you're under the sound of my voice right now, hear me, what Christianity says that no other of those views will ever say to you. Christianity's fundamental answer to that disconnectedness is diametrically opposed to every other answer to it. Because it says that the problem will not fundamentally be solved with your moral effort, with your self-discovery, with your pursuit of some path or way. It says that one came from that ultimate reality. That ultimate reality himself bridged that gap, came toward us, accommodated himself to our broken, sinful woundedness didn't ask us to accommodate ourselves to his holiness and righteousness and perfection, but he came to bridge that gap, put himself in the way of that disconnectedness, became disconnectedness from ultimate reality. This is Jesus on the cross. This is what he did. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you, what, forsaken me? In other words, why am I disconnected from that which I fundamentally am? You see, he stood in your place. He came and got you. He pursued you. He bridged the divide. It is not a movement upward. Christianity is fundamentally about God's movement downward toward us. This is, apart from all of the theological symbolism and jargon of high priest and Melchizedek and all of these wild things we've been looking at, that's the point. That, as chapter 8 says, now the point in what this pastor and this pastor are going on and on about is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. We have one who came, who pursued us, and now stands in for us in ultimate reality, connecting us to that which our souls most need. In other words, we have one who came to us in the wilderness, who walked the wilderness path, who knows it well and is now where we are headed, but doesn't stay there. This is, the, this is the, the sort of mixed symbolism of even this very passage, is while Jesus is seated where we all belong, he is coming to us constantly to meet our needs, to comfort us, to challenge us, to call out perseverance in us on the hard and difficult way. This is what Hebrews is about. This is why we have called this series Resilient Faith. Because has anyone felt the need for some resilience this last year? Can I at least get an amen on that? I might not get an amen on much. But there has been a need for resilience this last year, a need to put one foot in front of the other, the need to quote Frozen, to do the next right thing, right? This is what this year has been. And we say that it is impossible, impossible, hear me, to put one foot in front of the other, and not just one foot in front of the other, but to actually head in the correct direction apart from a perfect and true companion who can come alongside you and say, come on, I got you, puts his arm around us and says, we're going that way. I, I know you want to go, we're going that way. That's what it means to have a true and good and better high priest. Now, what in these few verses uh, the, the pastor says is he wants to give us where he's headed from here is basically to say, one, what is Jesus doing now? 
What's the where and, and what? what? What's Jesus up to now? What does this all mean that he's in heaven, that he's where we belong? And then the, the massively compelling question that I could not be more excited for two Sundays from now, where we'll be right back here by God's grace, where he will define how did he get there? Hebrews is the best place in the scriptures to go to, to understand. And I think for even those of us who have been walking with Jesus for some time, Hebrews has these beautiful chapters we're just on the brink of that define for us what in the world happened on the cross and what happened after that. How does the death of a first century Jewish carpenter have anything to do with my soul's biggest need? How does that work? How, how, what does it mean I remember when, when my now wife and I, my girlfriend at the time, uh, were talking about faith and rediscovering faith. And, and she would say all the time, like, what, what do you mean, like, I have to be saved? Like, what am I saved? And what, is, what does that man's death have to do with saving me? Like, what's the connection there? That's where we're headed. And there's some massively um, just wild stuff on that. But what the, the author of Hebrews will do in these couple verses is he wants to reawaken our imagination to the fact that this world is not just what we see, that the circumstances of your life today is reality. They matter deeply, and they matter deeply to God, but there is a reality beyond that that in some ways is cosmically more significant than merely what we can see, touch, feel, smell, okay? So listen to these words. I just love the sound of kids back in our gathering. This is the best. Join me in verse 2. Jesus is a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he, that's Jesus, were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. What this is saying is an argument, you'd have to go back and listen, an argument that basically, how could Jesus be a priest given the particular lineage that he has, given the genealogy, given what his 21 and me is? Like, it doesn't make sense that he would qualify as a priest. And it's saying, yeah, that's because he's not a priest on earth. His priesthood is actually in heaven. And you go, oh, that sounds cool. And it's like, no, 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 like really actually in heaven, in a tent, not made by human hands, but made by God himself, set up by God himself. Because what's on earth, verse five, is a copy. The priests on earth serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when, this is wild, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, this is from Exodus 25, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Okay, we have weeks to go into what this means, but here's what this is saying. It's saying that everything that happened in the ancient Jewish temple was a copy and a shadow of something that is actually truly tangibly, really happening in heaven right now. And it says that what existed back then was a, was a cut in the word copy. I'm not thrilled with. It's more like it was an outline. It was the architectural sketches, architecture, shout out to the architect. <laughs> um, it, it's the architectural designs Right? And so it's saying, like, even though the temple was real, the best way to conceive it is, like, it was just sketches. It was just blueprints. It was just, like, rolled out on a big old architect's table of something that was far grander. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, 
Pete Palmer has shown me like the the architectural sketches of the 27 where we gather. And I can't like my mind doesn't quite compute how like that became now what we have. It's a stunning difference between what's written on the page and the enormity, the complexity, the beauty of what actually is manifest when it's built. It's saying that the temple as beautiful, as significant, as meaningful, as enormous as it was, is like a sketch on a table compared to what it points to. And so it's saying that what happened in the temple, which was, again, fundamental to break it all down, is that the temple was a way of showing how can sinful, messed up, rebellious, broken, wounded human beings possibly stand in the presence of a holy and perfect God. Those two don't go together. How can me and my little insignificant, let me put it in other terms, insignificant life, my life that nobody really cares about, that maybe nobody sees except my 27 followers on Instagram, how can my life have any significance to ultimate reality? What is, how can those two things be connected? The temple is solving that by saying, yeah, you need something to stand in between your insignificance, your rebelliousness, your brokenness, your imperfection, and that holiness. And it's saying that there is one who now does that actually at a level of depth and reality that the temple couldn't touch. That that's happening right now. That you are, if you will move toward him, you are connected to ultimate reality in spite of yourself. That is true. That is the enormous truth of every single one of our lives. That is your fun. There is so much talk right now about identity. And I realize that there's a ton of nuance. For the follower of Jesus, there is no identity more primary than the fact that in spite of yourself, you are somehow named with the name of ultimate reality himself. You bear the name of Jesus. That is who you are. And that that's happening because there's one who stands right now, actually not metaphorically, not symbolically. There is one who stands before you and brings your name, brings your story, brings your junk before God and says, this one is mine. I am Eve's high priest. I'm Christie's high priest. I'm Andy's high priest. It is that personal and real. And you don't have to go anywhere for it to happen. The actual temple is thousands of miles away, right? Or it was from where we're sitting. No, no, no. That's happening right now. As, as close as, it, it says that heaven, right? What's the conception of heaven here? Heaven is not way out there. It's not out beyond Jupiter or something. No, heaven in the scriptures is the ultimate reality that stands just behind the veil of what we can see. And so heaven is like as close as your breath is. And, and in that closeness, that intimacy, there is one who stands with you at every moment and says, mine, mine, mine. Yeah, I know. I, I know that that's true, but they're mine. I did what they couldn't do. I, I know that they're not who they should be, but I was who they should be. And so they're mine. We'll talk a ton more about that in weeks to come. Here's how the pastor lands it. But as it is, Jesus has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant. Covenant is what we'll talk about next week. He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. More excellent, better, better. 
what this is saying, right? It's not just saying better in terms of degree. It's not saying like uh, the, the old covenant and the old provisions were like a seven and now Jesus like boosted us to an eight and a half. No, this is saying, this is the comparison between uh, uh, symbolic things and the actual thing. This is, this is between uh, uh, something that points forward to a reality and that reality actually showing up, right? This is blueprints versus building. That's what it's talking about here. It's saying it's better. So how do we land this here? We've been using this image of uh, mountain climbing, and we've said that in this climb, right, it's a, it's a little different than the wilderness image, that in this climb that, um, that we are headed up towards something, that the journey of faith is a journey to rest at the top of a mountain, as it were. We've said that Jesus, the one who did what we could not do, has already gotten to the mountaintop. And beautifully, he doesn't just shout down, hey, keep, keep going, you're doing great, right? Like, not, this is not a self-help thing we're talking about here. This is ultimate reality. Instead, first, he nails in a line at the top, an anchor at the top. He sends us down a line. As that song says, right, this idea of bind my wandering heart to thee. Let your grace now like a fetter. Let your grace now like a tether, like a rope. Bind me to you. And it says, this is what Jesus has done. And then he hasn't just said, okay, good luck, climb hard. He comes down with us. He's our priest. He's our companion in that. He comes with us. He makes the climb with us. He says, one foot there, one hand there. I, I, know, I, I know you don't understand why we would go that way to get that way, but this is what mountain climbing is. And so come with me over here. And what this is saying is that on that climb, that tether, that fetter is the promises of Jesus. That's what binds us. It is not our moral effort to get up that ultimately keeps us connected to him. It is his promises. It is promises that he has committed himself to. These are the better promises. That rope is firm and secure. It is quadruple enforced by the promises of Jesus. And so when you feel yourself letting go from the mountain, as we all do at times, when you feel yourself wandering off, there is a tether that remains with you, whether you choose to have it there or not. Can you say amen to that? Like, Jesus does not look down. I think so many of us have the image that the journey of faith is Jesus standing at the top and saying, mm, ne never, right, like, invoke, like, never going to get it, never going to get it. Like, they're not going to do it. Oh, well, good luck. Oh, I wouldn't have done that. Okay, oh. That's pretty, oh no, they fell off. No, this doesn't last long, just watch. Right, like that's really how we think God is toward us. That is the language, I don't know about you. Maybe I'm putting my stuff on you. That's the language of my heart. It's like he is just standing up there like, I hope they may, oh my goodness, they let go. Uh, I should probably extend a hand. No, 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 no. The promises of Jesus say you're getting here. Insofar as it depends on Jesus, he's getting us there. That tether is there. Yeah, we can sing, bind my wandering heart to thee, to thee. And Jesus says, what do you think I came to do? Right? Like, not that he's upset about beautiful song lyrics, but like, that's, that's what it is. That's what we have. We have that tether. And it's saying these are better promises. This is not about effort. This is not about how you look. This is not about an arrival point. This is not about effort. This is not about you looking a certain way. This is not about image. This is about ultimate reality as you are tethered, whether you realize it or not. The rest of this letter will say in 6,000 different ways, 
that because we have a high priest like that, the one thing it will call us to do again and again and again is it says, draw near. Draw near. Draw near. In other words, for those of you who are far from God, who are wandering, who are suspicious of all of this, God is not waiting for you to get your stuff together. He is already pursuing you. He is saying, just, just draw near. Do you hear the invitation in that? It's not saying, get your stuff together, pursue, and then we'll see. It's saying the offer stands. All you got to do is come close. All you got to do is bow the knee. All you got to do is say, I can't do this climb on my own. I need help. Right? For those of you who know him, who are walking with him, the rest of this letter, this pastor will say, this pastor will say in 6,000 ways, draw near. Draw near. The invitation is there. I don't know about you, but there's this dynamic I notice uh, the older I get um, where you use the language of you lose touch with someone, right? You get friends. Uh, remember like being in high school and just like really thinking like, I'm going to talk to all these people always forever. These are, these are the only people I will ever talk to. Even though we're going away and doing different things, we're going to talk to each other forever. Then you, whatever the next thing is, you go to college, you start a career, and you just think, these are my people. Like, we're going to be together forever. And then you move to a place, and you're like, these neighbors, we're never going to leave because we're going to be here forever. And then they move. And like, this is, and, and so you have all these people that you thought that you would be in contact with. So what happens, right? Like, I know, I'm touching, I'm touching a nerve right now for some people. What happens is maybe you talk for a little bit and you text and how are things going and all that. And then after a while, you lose touch. Now, in order for there to be like a restored conversation, in order for you, one of you is going to have to do this crazy thing where you're going to have to take the risk to say like, hi, how are you? I know we haven't talked in like four years. Because what's your assumption? Your assumption is, uh, if you're like me, now you might be on the other side of this, but if you're like me, your assumption is, now they hate me, now they think I've abandoned them, they're definitely gonna be mad at me. Now they haven't reached out to me, but I just put all this stuff because of who I am on myself, and I'm like, they're definitely mad. They're definitely mad that I'm the one who broke this up. And so if you do need to reach back out, there's this like, hey, how are you? Follow me. Again. I think that this is how we think God interacts with us. That he's sitting, that he has reconnected us to himself, that he has tethered himself to us by his very body and blood. And now he's off somewhere in the universe, tapping his foot saying, ain't on me. Ain't on me that we're disconnected. I'm waiting for you to come back. And it makes it feel like in order for you to draw near, in order for you to open your mouth in prayer, in order for you to go to him and ask for something, in order for you to open your mouth and confess sin and ask for forgiveness, you are going to have to bridge this infinite divide and, and, and experience the blowback wrath of his disappointment with your disconnectedness. Jacob Swell, that could not be further from the truth of the gospel. That is not good news if that's how God treats us. That is not even neutral news. That is horrible news if every day God is waiting for us to draw near. And when we don't, the relationship gets a little bit more distant. That is superimposing human categories on a holy, perfect, loving God. 
You see, far from that, who God is, is God is the one who will light up that text thread ceaselessly, endlessly, and say, hey, how are you? How are you? What's going on with you? Love to talk to you today. And then the next day, hey, how are you? What's going on? I'm here. I'm here for whatever you need. And I'll do it again and again. And as soon as you jump in, it'll be like you're responding to, to that day's one offer of invitation to connect. This is not who our God is. He did not do what he did on Calvary. He did not go to a cross. He did not put his body in the way. He did not go from heaven to earth and now stands back in heaven to tap his toe. He came so that there might be a ceaseless, a, a, a persevering faith that pursues us more aggressively than even our own shame, guilt, and doubts pursue us. He's more aggressive. He's more persistent than those things. And so he says, all I want you to do is draw near. And here's what drawing near does. Let me just define for you what that means. I'll offer a simple practice to you that I've actually uh, been imperfectly doing since our last discipleship course. It's, uh, it's a little, uh, very memorable, uh, corny little, uh, what are those things? Anagram, acronym, whatever. Acronym? P-R-A-Y, pray. Pause. Um, this, this is what I try and do most nights. Pause. I put a little two-minute timer on my phone because we need to disconnect from the busyness of the reality we see. We need to get out of the of our hearts and of our minds. And so pause. R, rejoice. Tell God you're grateful. Because here's what Here's what I've found. In some ways, the R is the most powerful one for me, is I have found that my propensity is to get to the end of a day and to focus on the one really hard thing about that day and then to look forward into the next week and to say, oh, no, there's that really hard thing coming. And when I look back on my day and actually say, no, this was good. This was sweetness. This was actually provision in the wilderness. This was a cold drink of water in the midst of the desert. You know what it does? It doesn't, God doesn't go, oh, finally, you you get it. Instead, it reminds me that there is a giver of those good gifts who is with me in all things, traveling with me, and likely the next day when I come back and draw near to him, there will be things to thank him for. I never get to R. I never get to rejoice and gratitude and go, ah, I got nothing today. And yet when I don't draw near, my heart says there's been nothing today. This is why we got to draw near, because then our joy actually is directed toward a giver and builds our faith. See how that works? A, ask. Right? This is normally what I do. I go straight to God. I say, everything's terrible. Everything's falling around me. Here are the 16,000 things that I need. But there's something about pausing first, rejoicing and expressing gratitude that makes the asking. It's just different. Here's what I've begun to do because I can't not do it, is I've begun going back to, I'm not a, like a journaling sort, but I've, just, I've been writing stuff down in all of this. I got like a really cool journal from this thing I went to and I felt bad not using it. So I've been using it and I write down things. And what I've been doing is going back, and it's amazing if you will record this, going back two weeks ago and looking at prayers that felt desperate and impossible just two weeks ago and going, oh my goodness, that one figured, it's, figured itself out, right? Like that's still the language of my heart. Oh, that one's not a thing anymore. Oh, that's actually turned really good. 
See, even in the asking and recording what we're asking, in that kind of drawing near, we are reminded that we have a faithful God. There is nothing that the people of God are more often called to do in the Old Testament than remember, stop forgetting. And yet if we're not drawing near, all we have is the record of our anxious hearts that are ceaselessly often negative and cynical. And then why is yield? Say to Jesus, man, you've provided for me. I still have stuff that's heavy on me. I still have stuff that feels impossible. I still have prayers that not only feel unanswered, it feels like they're going in the other direction. And yet, I feel the tether. I feel the promises. I feel that even if I were to let go, somehow I'd still be connected. And so I yield to you. And often in that, I'll just, whatever, throw on some worship or something like that. It's... We can keep it so simple, but here's my fear for people like us. My fear is that our anxieties go inward. Our joys go inward. Our burdens and pain and woundedness goes inward. And we think we can think ourselves out of them. We think that we can reason our way out of them, effort our way out of them. You efforted your way into the mess in the first place. You will not effort your way out of it. That is not why he has come. He has come to be your chief priest to reconnect you, to stand with you. And so make your joys gratitude to him. Make your anxieties things that he can bear. Make your wounds and woundedness things that you bring to the great physician who can actually heal me. Because my fear for us is that we will come out of COVID-19 and say, oh, finally I don't have to feel so dependent all the time on God, on others. When this is the time to not re-examine, not reconnect, you're connected. It's just draw near will be the call again and again. He's standing, waiting, literally as I speak this morning. So here's what we're going to do is we're about to come down this beautiful uh, middle row here. Uh, there's communion here and here. Here's what I would love for you to do first, though. Uh, and band, you guys can come up and play while we do this. First of all, uh, just grab the elements and then go back to your seat. I'll lead us through that time. But if you're willing, I would just love for you to take a moment, right? Like you might feel like, no, I can't go now. Like I'm going to have to get in a good space and put on some music. No, no, go to a now. Draw near now. And just share some of that with him. Maybe just those two movements. What are you grateful for today as you sit here? What's heavy on you today? Draw near to your high priest. Because as the pastor says, we have the point of everything. We have such a high priest. Let me lead us in prayer. Father God, I thank you that 